What does the cross mean to you? Um, of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for us because um, he died. He he died instead of us dying. He he died for us to save our sins. What the cross means to me is absolute surrender. Surrender to a king who sits on the throne, to a savior who hung in my place, and a spirit that absolutely counsels me every single day. This image hangs on our wall to remind me of this every day. I think at the most basic level, the cross means that I need a savior. Calvary's cross. There are so many meaningful aspects of the cross. Jesus allowed himself to suffer and die at the hands of others. No man took Jesus' life from him. Christ had the power from the Father to lay down his life and to take it up again, his death for our life. Jesus loved the Father so much, as well as us, that he completed everything the Heavenly Father commanded him to do. There is no love greater than what Jesus endured on that cross. The cross is hope. It's a hope of a new life, a new family. Uh, it's also a, a reminder, a reminder of who I was, who I am, and who he is. Uh, Easter to me and the cross is, is this season of hope. What does the cross mean to me? It means that there's nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The cross means everything to me. Before I was a Christian, I was indulging in things that I shouldn't have been in. I was self-absorbed. I was thinking only about myself and what I could do for myself. But because of the cross, I became a new creature in Christ. And I'm here today to say that it has changed my life. Joseph, what does the cross mean to you? He died on the cross. Who died on the cross? Jesus. Jesus. Why did he die on the cross? 
Because he wanted to save our sins. Yes. And where does Jesus live now? In heaven. Where else does he live? In your heart. Where? In your heart. In your heart. What Christ did on the cross made it possible for me to die to myself, and it is now Christ who lives in me. It is because of this that I will remain confident that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What does the cross mean to you? Um, of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for us because um, he died. He he died instead of us dying. He he died for us to save our sins. What the cross means to me is absolute surrender. Surrender to a King who sits on the throne, to a Savior who hung in my place, and a spirit that absolutely counts me every single day. This image hangs on our wall to remind me of this every day. I think at the most basic level, the cross means that I need a savior. Calvary's cross, there are so many meaningful aspects of the cross. Jesus allowed himself to suffer and die at the hands of others. No man took Jesus' life from him. Christ had the power from the Father to lay down his life and to take it up again, his death for our life. Jesus loved the Father so much, as well as us, that he completed everything the Heavenly Father commanded him to do. There is no love greater than what Jesus endured on that cross. What does the cross mean to me? It means that there's nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The cross means everything to me. Before I was a Christian, I was indulging in things that I shouldn't have been in. I was self-absorbed. I was thinking only about myself and what I could do for myself. But because of the cross, I became a new creature in Christ. And I'm here today to say that it has changed my life. Joseph, what does the cross mean to you? He died on the cross. Who died on the cross? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Why did he die on the cross? Because he wanted to save our sins. Yes. And where does Jesus live now? In heaven. Where else does he live? In your heart. 
Where? In your heart. In your heart. The cross is hope. It's a hope of a new life, a new family. Uh, it's also a, a reminder, a reminder of who I was, who I am, and who he is. Uh, Easter to me and the cross is, is this season of hope. What Christ did on the cross made it possible for me to die to myself, and it is now Christ who lives in me. It is because of this that I will remain confident that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. To me, the cross means Jesus saved me from my sins. Hey, what does the cross mean to me? The cross is everything. It is the place where my Savior laid down his life voluntarily so that I might be redeemed, forgiven, and clothed in his righteousness. Indescribable, perfect love. What the cross means to me is redemption. Um, not just the one-time redemption when I was saved, but a daily redemption. Um, yeah, just that I don't have to dwell on any past mistakes. I don't have to dwell on anything that happened yesterday that I can wake up and know that His mercies are new every morning. For me, the cross has meant a humble surrender. Um, I came to Christ humbly when I was broken and was redeemed. And sometimes I have to come before Him humble with a humble heart daily, but it's about giving up my own desires and what I want, and it's replacing it with what God wants for my life and how He wants to work through me to best serve others. When I ponder the cross, one of the scriptures that I've hidden in my heart is Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the manner in which he came, Philippians 2, 7, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And to think that he taught in Matthew 18 that me being a dumb sheep, he would leave all others and just come get me is humbling. What the cross means to me is represented in 2 Corinthians 5.21. But God made he who had no sin sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the question is, is what does the cross mean to me? Um, I'm not sure that words do this justice, but the cross for me points to the greatest act of love ever in the greatest love story ever. The cross means to me that our sin was so bad that the creator of the universe had to come and die on the cross for me. And it also means that the creator of the universe loved us so much that he came and died on the cross just so we could live with him forever. Hey Micah. Hey. I got a question for you. Yeah? What yeah. does the cross mean to you? Dad, that's easy. It means that Jesus died for our sins. That's easy, Dad. Why did you ask me that? The cross is a reminder to me that Jesus died for our sins. The cross reminds me how sinful we are, but then how much God does love us. The cross is the ultimate reminder of the fact that um, the kingdom of heaven is completely opposite of the ways of the world. The cross to me means love. That while I was a sinner and had nothing good to offer, that Christ would, in love, choose to give himself up on my behalf. 
cross to me means new life, hope, and extravagant love. To me, the cross reminds me that the creator and sustainer of the universe loved me and us so much that he sent his son to die for us. The cross reminds me of Jesus and it makes me think of Jesus and it makes me think of Easter. So that's why Jesus, we celebrate Jesus on Easter because he died on the cross to forgive our sins. He became sin who knew no sin, that we may become righteous in him. The cross is everything. The cross is an emblem of sin and shame, but now because of the sacrifice of Jesus on it, we can find hope, we can find grace, we can find peace. It is evidence of God's mercy and love and justice and sovereignty. The whole biblical narrative leads us to the cross, and the good news today is that sin and death have been defeated and Jesus reigns forever. Well, the cross of Jesus is the constant reminder of process. The constant reminder to just wait a couple more days. Then resurrection is coming. Victory is coming. The cross of Jesus is a constant reminder to me that whether I live, whether I die, may I glorify him in all seasons of my life. The cross of Jesus is a constant hope to my heart is the hope for our world that needs it so much today. The cross began to matter to me when I finally learned what kind of person it was going to require to save me. Perfect, undefiled, courageous, brave, kind, that's who it took to save me. Any pretense of goodness I had went flying out the window. And I guess my cat wanted to get in on this too. morning Crossroads family. Glad that we have an opportunity to be joined together again today in worship and in the word. Let's turn our eyes just like Julie just encouraged us to to the, the God of all comfort. Let's pray together. Father we love you. So glad that you're not contained by a building but you are with us wherever we are. So glad that your church can come together in, in unity in the spirit and worship and pray to you. Open up your word to know you more, God. And, and though this pandemic has changed our, our situations, it doesn't change anything about who you are. That we can still uh, come to you as a father, cast our cares upon you, open up your word, learn from you. That your Holy Spirit is still at work moving among us. So we just pray this morning, Jesus, that our eyes would be open to that. Our hearts would be humbled. And, and open to how you want to work in us today, God. We love you. Come meet us in our homes. We pray. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a
everything inside of me. And I raise a hallelujah. And I will watch the darkness flee. I raise a hallelujah. Right now, in the middle of the mystery. Your presence will always be 
rise against me. I believe it. I will trust your unfailing love. I know the giants fall. I know the mountains move. Even though my faith is small, I'll trust in you. And I will see the darkness flee. I will see your light break through. I believe it. I know the giants fall. I know the mountains move. Even though my faith is small, I will trust in you. I will see the darkness flee. I will see your light break through. And I know you're with me. And your presence will always be enough. Though the waters rise against me, I will trust your unfaith. Love, I will trust your unfailing love. Again, God, we fix our eyes on you. Pray that there would be a few distractions and that this morning we could sit and, and listen to your word. And if there are distractions, thank you. That it's just part of it. That this season we get to have that. Pray that we would find joy this morning in sinking our hearts up together through song, through your text, Lord. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this week we got something kind of exciting coming up, and we're going to go to a video to, to kind of let you know what that is. Good morning, Crossroads family. My name is Clint Westbrook. I'm here with my colleague, Michael Gulker. I've been at Crossroads for about three years now, and I've been so fortunate to be part of this family. I really love being part of this community, even from afar. Um, coming to you today as a, a member of the Colossian Forum, which is a nonprofit in Grand Rapids. Uh, my journey to the Colossian Forum was a long one. I started as a litigator and saw a lot of nastiness and thought Christians should have a better way to engage conflict, which led me to the Colossian Forum. Um, Michael Gulker here is the president of Colossian Forum. He's the founder. He's been a pastor for 15 years, the last 10 of which he's been set aside to address the desperate need in the church for more redemptive ways to engage conflict. And of course, right now we find ourselves in particularly difficult, pressured situations more often than usual. And the body of Christ really needs tools to work through these challenging times, tools that help apply the wisdom of the Christian faith that we hear about every Sunday morning. So for the last nine years, the Colossian Forum has been working to develop resources to equip Christians in conflict. And in a few days, we'll be facilitating a conversation, live streamed, that will provide some tools that we've developed for the Crossroads body to help us engage each other in these difficult topics. At the Colossian Forum, we've developed a uniquely Christian method of engaging difficult conversations in ways that build up the body of Christ rather than tear it down. And our method works by activating our most basic and cherished Christian commitments precisely at the point of conflict. And most importantly, we've learned that applying these commitments takes practice, practice in everyday situations and conflicts. And you know what? There are a lot of opportunities to practice right now. So we should be taking advantage of them. 
So how does all this work? Well, uh, it's a three-step process, and we put the conflict right in the center of that process. We gather Christians together in the name of Jesus. We practice loving God and neighbor while engaging the difficult problem, and we witness the body of Christ built up. So to see how this works and to learn we're going to be putting on a live stream on Tuesday night from 7 to 8.30, where we'll be talking with Rod and Tim about how we can use conflict as a means of discipleship and witness to the power of the resurrected king. Thanks very much. Good morning, Crossroads. Again, I wish I could say it's great to see everybody, like I say every week, uh, but this is in many ways a difficult time, but an exciting time for the church. I just feel like this has afforded crossroads and really the church at large all over the world the opportunity to live into what Jesus established when he established the church 2,000 years ago. And Crossroads, you're doing such a great job of being the church 24-7, 365, uh, shining the light of Jesus Christ at your street corner. And uh, let's just keep going strong in this. Now, if you're like our family, one, it has been an incredible joy and privilege to just be together as a family the way that we are uh, every day, all day. Uh, with that come a few more fights. Our household can be a little bit louder at times, but in that, it's all good. And I think one of the great challenges that this virus has brought to the world to our country, to our cities, to our neighborhoods, is the challenge of unity. And this disunity, division, must not, cannot enter the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, a house divided will not stand. He said in John 17, that our witness to the world that Jesus is the Christ is that we would love one another and that we would be one as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. And so in light of this, I am calling our entire church to Tuesday night to live stream because that will be a time where uh, we can get our marching orders for how we as a church, uh, when, when there's this proclivity to division, where we can learn how to become one, unified. So look forward to seeing you Tuesday night. John chapter 5. Get your Bible. Let's turn there. And this is how it reads. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, probably the festival of Pentecost. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there 
and learn that he had been in this condition for this time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the envelope replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else always goes ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Aliyah, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. Our family just finished watching the first season of The Chosen. The Chosen is a six-part series on the life of Christ, and it relies heavily on the first four chapters of John's Gospel. So it's been a lot of fun to watch this as we've been studying these chapters in John. Uh, Nicodemus is one of the main characters. Uh, The first season ends with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and and it's really well done. I, I strongly encourage you to watch it if you haven't. And sometimes an episode will begin with a flashback scene, a flashback to a story in the Old Testament. For instance, the episode that deals with Jesus encountering Nicodemus, it begins with this flashback scene in the Old Testament uh, of Moses. He's there arguing with Joshua because Moses is crafting this bronze snake that he is about to put on a pole and put before the people. And it, it starts that whole episode in a profound way, and it sets the stage for the conversation that Jesus will have with Nicodemus. Because you can't fully understand Jesus or the cross without understanding this story. Now there is a flashback scene for today's text and last week's text. Because John wants us to see these two stories together. It's the story in the Old Testament of the spies. It's right after God's people are in the desert. God has liberated them from Egypt. He's taken them to that mountain to marry them. Now it's time to enter the promised land. So they send out these 12 spies to scout out the promised land. The the spies come back. They say, wow, the land is amazing, flowing with milk and honey. You can hardly believe how beautiful it is. But then they say, we can't. We can't take it. It's too great. There are giants there, walled cities. We're too small. We can't. Now, this should invoke a response in the reader if you've been reading the story up to this point. Like, what do you mean you can't? After God's amazing display of signs and wonders, the ten plagues, the parting of the sea, every day water gushing from a rock, manna being rained down from heaven, every day signs and wonders that God is performing, and then you say, we can't? And that's why God's response in Numbers 14, 11 is this, how long will these people refuse to believe in me? despite all the signs and wonders that I have performed among them. God is exasperated. All these signs and wonders that I've performed and you still don't believe. Last week, when that royal official comes to Jesus desperate, my son is dying. Jesus, for some reason, is exasperated. I don't think it's so much with this man, but it's the people. He says, unless these people see signs and wonders they simply will not believe it's almost a word for word quote of numbers 14 
Verse 11. Because faith that is dependent on signs and wonders will almost always lead to faithlessness. Like Israel in the Old Testament. Once we get the signs and wonders, and by the way, we get them every day. The sun rising, the sun setting is a sign and wonder. Every breath we take is a miracle. But it's never enough. This is why faith that's based on signs and wonders, it's hollow. It can be incredibly selfish. I mean, think about Abraham, who is the gold standard of faith. How many signs and wonders did God give him? None. But Abraham took God at his word, and he walked. Even when God said, I want you to take your son Isaac and walk him up a mountain, Abraham walked. That's faith. It's the royal official last week. He took Jesus at his word, and he departed. He walked. I don't know, I see signs and wonders sometimes as a gateway drug that we need to be very careful with. And this is why God says to the people in the desert, he said, this generation will not, they will not go into the promised land. Um, In fact, look at how he puts this. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, he says, 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By that time then, the entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. The desert was supposed to be two years. It turned into 40. 38 more years until they perished. Now we come to this man at the pool. Is it coincidence that this man has, man has been lame for 38 years? Do you know this is the only other time 38 is used in the Bible? And when Jesus says to this man, do you want to get well? He essentially says, I can't. Just like the spies, we can't. Now again, remember for John that these miracles that Jesus does, they're, they're more than miracles, they're signs. A miracle is simply the raw power of God breaking in. It's a supernatural act. But a sign is more than a miracle. It's really a a parable in real life. And think about what parables are, are there for. They're there to explain the deeper meaning of things. And these miracles do the same thing. They paint a picture of something much deeper, almost epic, that's going on. And the way that we can know the deeper meaning of Jesus' miracles is by knowing the text. The text in its context. Just like we can't really know the full meaning of John 3.16 without knowing the story of the snake on a pole. Or the salvation that Jesus offers the Samaritan woman without knowing what the Bible says about living water. So what is the deeper meaning here? We'll start asking questions. Here we have a man who's been lame for 38 years. Could this be a picture of the state of God's people at this time, like faithful, faithless Israel in the desert? They have become spiritual cripples, saying we can't do this. Why does John take us to a pool? 
I mean, think about some of the major themes so far in John chapter 2, 3, and 4, the theme of water, of, of the living water that Jesus offers. And here is a man who's trying to get it into this water, and he can't do it. I take people to this pool every time we go to Israel. There are two major pools uh, in Jerusalem at the time that both show up in John's gospel. This pool is called Bethesda. And if you see where it is there in the northern part of the city of Jerusalem and its proximity to the temple there off in the background. You can also see the five colonnades uh, that is described in the text. Bethesda actually means house of hesed, house of loving kindness, of mercy, of grace. Yet, by Jesus' day, this has evolved into a pagan place. Because archaeologists have not only uncovered this pool, but at the entrance of the the pool, they've uncovered a temple to the Roman god Asclepius. Asclepius is the Roman god of healing. Always depicted with a staff in hand and a snake wrapped around that staff. To this day, that is the symbol of healing. His daughter Hygieia the goddess of hygiene or cleanliness, not just personal cleanliness, but the hygiene of a neighborhood, the hygiene of a city, always depicted with a bowl in her hand and a snake hovering over the bowl. To this day, that is the symbol of pharmaceutical in in the pharmacies. So that pool where this man lies is a Roman healing center that would be the closest thing to a hospital in that world. These healing centers in this, at this time are called Asclepions. Asclepions were in every Roman city. They practiced holistic medicine, which included the bathing in pools. And the healing powers that were ignited in these places would all be attributed to the god Asclepius, who at this time is called the savior of the world. So what is a Roman Asclepian doing in first city Jerusalem? Well, look at where it's located. Not just near the temple. But that Antonio Fortress is where Rome has its legions stationed. This is Rome's hospital serving Rome's soldiers who are barracked in Jerusalem. In fact, there's an urban legend that's in the ancient Roman writings that's attached to this god Asclepius, and it goes like this. When the waters are stirred, the first one in gets healed, and that too shows up in our text. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now, what does this tell us about this man? It tells us he's in the wrong place, believing in the wrong God, and he's looking to the wrong waters for salvation. Here's another question. Why does Jesus heal this man? There would have been hundreds of sick people. I mean, every disease imaginable. You'd see congregated around this pool. Why just this man? Well, think about that text we looked at a couple weeks ago, Isaiah Isaiah 35, which says the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Why? Because that Maim Kaim, the living water, will enter it. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, when Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the captive will be set free. 
But there's something extra special about the fact that the lame will walk. And not just walk, but they will leap. They will dance. Because this whole thing from the beginning has been about a walk. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. That's what was lost in the garden. God's first words to Abraham, walk. God is again teaching the human race how to walk. And Abraham spent his whole life walking with God. God says over and over again, walk before me, walk in my word, walk in accordance to my ways, walk after me, walk like me, walk in the newness of life. The lame in the Bible are more than just lame, but they are a metaphor, they are a picture for a people who no longer walk with God. That's why when Messiah comes, Not only will the lame walk again, but God's people will walk again. They will walk with God. They will walk like God. So feel the excitement of reading verses 8 to 9. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. And he picked up his mat. And he walked. Can you see him? 38 years in this condition? And this man comes up to him and says, rise up, take up your mat and walk. We must see the enormity of what God is doing through Jesus. Sickness in the Bible represents chaos. And Jesus here, like God at creation, when he spoke into the chaos and brought about shalom, God is in Christ speaking again to the chaos. Shalom. He came to the world to say to spiritual cripples, arise, take up your mat, and walk. Look at our world right now. Our world is groaning. It's sick. But this is nothing new. Romans 8 says, We know the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The world has always been groaning. But not only does our world groan, but Paul says, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we too groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Paul says, we groan. Think about our groans. We groan from physical sickness, relational sickness, moral sickness, most significantly spiritual sickness. Now think about what Jesus has to say to this man. A man who's been lame for 38 years. Do you want to get well? What kind of question is this? It's a great question. Because many of us don't even know we're lame. 
that were sick. I mean, think of the royal official last week. Think about him before his son got sick unto death. If you went up to him and asked, sir, do you want to get well? He would have said, what the heck are you talking about? See, John wants us to lay these two men side by side because they represent the two kinds of people in our world, the haves and the have-nots. For the royal official, he represents people who say, yep, life works. And he's probably very happy and hopeful. But this institutional layman probably sits there and says every day, life sucks. And he's despairing and he's given up. What causes them to be in these places? Well, we all live with this certain degree of entitlement that life owes us, that we're entitled to happiness, that we're entitled to a good life, a good job, good relationships, good friendships, good vacations, a good spouse, good family. But what happens? When in the snap of a finger like it did for this royal official. It all falls apart. This week, we can look around, and we've experienced the snap of the finger. Our whole world, our whole world has changed. We're losing things. Things are slipping through our hands. We're losing our jobs. We're losing our income. My best friend growing up, I mean, we were like this. Sometimes he jogged two miles over to my house. He gave me my name, Rock. Uh, some people still call me that. He called me up recently. He said, Rock, my son overdosed on drugs, and he's dead. Snap of the finger. Just like that. 24-year-old son. How do we respond when life doesn't deliver? When life doesn't meet our expectations? When hopes are shattered? Tragedies when they occur? When our marriage falls apart? When we find out we have a life-threatening illness? When we get the call that our child's been in an accident? Do you want to get well? It's a good question. Because some of us, like this lame man, we don't want to get well. Not everyone using drugs or addicted to pornography or cheating on their spouse wants to stop. Not everyone who's resentful, angry, bitter wants to be healed. Not everyone who's living a comfortable, selfish life wants the life that Jesus came to offer. Yet Jesus is asking all of us this question, do you want to get well? There's an Indian parable told of this tiger cub whose mother died at his birth and a flock of goats came around him and raised him and he grew up eating goat food learning how to talk like a goat, learning the ways of a goat, learning how to act like a goat. And soon this young, young tiger thought it was a goat until 
One day, not just a tiger, but the king tiger showed up. The goats scattered. And the young tiger stood before the goat, uneasy but unafraid. And the tiger soon realized that this young tiger didn't know it was a tiger. So he grabbed the tiger by the neck and brought it to a pool and put its head by its head to, to show that this, this tiger whose image he bore, that still didn't work. And so the king tiger then got a piece of meat, raw meat, and gave it to the goat. At first, the goat was repulsed by it, but soon it ate it. And as it digested it, it began to realize what it was. That it wasn't a goat. It was a tiger. We live in a goat world. We live like goats. We live among goats. We act like goats. Our appetites are that of the goats. We smell like goats. We adjust our ways, our standards, our ways of thinking to that of the goat. Religious people try to tame the goat. Hedonists and materialists try to indulge the goat. Educators try to enlighten the goat. Politicians try to manipulate the goat. But in the end, we're just goats. Our Bibles begin with these exciting words, in the beginning, God. And then it says, and God spoke. And he said, let us make them in our image. And so God made them, male and female, in his image, not as goats, but as tigers. And yet we have lost our way. And we've become so content in our goathood, in our goat world, that we have forgotten what God intended when he made us. We are made like him. And John begins his gospel with these exciting words of Genesis 1 and creation in the beginning. But instead of saying God, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And by the word, all things were made. And then he says, and that word became flesh. He became like us. He made his dwelling among us. He came to the neighborhood. And John says, we beheld him. We saw him. And what did they see? Not a goat, a tiger, the king tiger. And a Christian is simply someone who has seen the tiger. This explosion of a man, this explosion of life. And a genuine Christian is not someone who just sees him but turns to him and stops trusting other pools and seeking other waters, but trusts him with their entire life, irrespective of their circumstances. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And this is what John is here to tell us. Jesus is the cure. He's the cure to everything that ails us. To our despair, our hopelessness, our bitterness, our resentment, our pride, our selfishness, our broken marriage, our broken lives, our broken hearts. 
and just consider his cure for a moment. Think about all the miracles that we see Jesus doing. What do these miracles teach? They show us the the way the world was supposed to be and the way that God through Christ is recreating it to be. I mean, I think of the, 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 the miracles as the most exciting movie trailer because they're teasing us. They are whetting our appetite for all the stuff that Jesus ignited that is yet to come. The lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lepers will be cleansed, and the dead will be raised. And think about a world where there is no blindness, not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. Think about a world where there's no leprosy, not just physical leprosy, spiritual leprosy. Jesus will see this guy a little bit later. You know know what he'll say to him? You can see it in verse 14. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen. Because there is something worse than being lame for 38 years. There's something worse than losing your job. There's something worse than even losing your son to a tragic accident. There will be a lot of healthy, accomplished people in hell. And there will be a lot of invalids leaping like deer in the kingdom of heaven. Where are you today? Where's your heart? What pool are you trying to get into? What waters are you seeking? Do you want to be made well? Do you need to hear Jesus say, rise up and walk? Admit that you're not well. Admit that in many ways you still live like a goat. Admit that you're helpless. Confess the broken things in your life. In fact, we can do that in our heart, but we now have means by which we can do this as a community where we can confess. So on the right side of your screen, tell your community how you are not well. What needs to be healed? And many of you right now ought to be typing things. Jesus said, the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, they complained to him, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I did not come to call the healthy, but the sick. Not the righteous, but the sinner." And as some of you are typing and reading what your community is saying, I want to call our prayer team. They're going to gather all of these these requests and they're going to pray. And they're going to get these requests to pastors and to elders. And we're going to pray. So keep writing. But keep one ear open to what I'm going to say as well. Let's get some guts. Let's get to Jesus. Think about that royal official last week, the guts that he had, the desperation, how he sought out Jesus, and when he found him, he fell at his feet and he begged him, when's the last time you've done that? 
And then finally, let's trust him. The way we receive the cure is when we trust our entire life to him. The best definition of trust in the Bible is what Dan preached on last week. It's this royal official's response to Jesus before he got the sign in the wonder. He took Jesus at his word and he walked. We can do that today. And as a P.S., do you know why the early Christians had zero passion for politics and political parties? They were too busy looking at the tiger and calling the world to see the tiger. God, take all of our goat. And God, would you turn it into the tiger you made us to be as we trust our lives to you, Jesus. You have the power to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's prepare our hearts for communion.
Um, we were actually, uh, myself and the kids were uh, stuck there. Jamie had gone to the States about a month ago, and uh, we were all stuck there during the coronavirus pandemic after the airport shut down, and um, it was a really trying time. Um, we didn't know if or when we would be able to get out, if or when our family would be reunited. Um, and so it was just a very trying time. Many of you prayed for us, which we were so thankful for. Many of you contacted representatives and senators, and um, we're back. We're back together now, reunited, and um, so thankful for that. And uh, the Lord taught us a lot through all that. In, in the midst of being on my own in the States and not knowing if they would get back, there were multiple hopeful flights that all ended in, no, sorry, this isn't going to happen. I, I really had a sense of God was there. I didn't have a sense that it was definitely going to work out okay or that there was, I didn't have a for sure trust that they were going to make it back. But I had just a real knowledge that no matter what happened, God was with me and God was with them and that was enough. Um, and that just brought, I really understood, I think for maybe the first time in my life, what peace that passes understanding means. It was a peace that existed apart from knowing things were going to be okay. Um, but it was still real peace and it, it was comforting and it was just the knowledge that God was with all of us no matter what the outcome was going to be. And so we actually returned to the U.S. on Passover, um, which is pretty amazing. And most of you realize probably that the Lord's Supper, when Jesus started it, was, it was on Passover. Um, and so it was really significant and meaningful for us that we... We left this time of, of uncertainty and difficulty and, and, and really detainment um, on Passover, just as the Israelites left Egypt in their time of slavery on Passover. And, and the Lord's Supper today um, means freedom for us. Um, and we each have a story, those of us who are trying to follow Jesus, we each have a story of being freed from slavery, freed from bondage, freed from our sins. And so as we take communion this morning together, um, you've got a story of your own that, that may have nothing to do with airplanes and so forth, but we each have this story of our own sin and our own bondage. And so um, as we take this together this morning, um, I just want to encourage you to remember that you're free. You are free from everything that, that has trapped you in the past, and um, we can each celebrate that together um, this morning. So, Father, we thank you for this bread, and we thank you that it represents uh, your body on the cross, Jesus, and we thank you for this cup that represents your blood shed for us, and just the freedom that you give us, and the freedom to have hope, um, and the freedom to um, move forward and um, in your kingdom and in your work that you've given us to do as a family and as a church. So we thank you for these symbols, and we thank you for our body together. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to leave you this morning uh, just with one more song, and it's going to work as not only a time for you to take communion, but also a time to just receive the blessing of God. This is a song that's written out of Numbers chapter 6, and it's just that, that blessing that Aaron pr pronounces over the people of Israel. So. Bless you and keep.
face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give peace. Let's sing that again. The Lord bless. The Lord bless you. shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace Amen and
for joining us this morning. Look forward to seeing you a couple opportunities throughout the week. The Colossian Forum, Tuesday night, a morning of worship and prayer Wednesday morning, and then a night of worship on Thursday night. And again, the next week we'll be back here Sunday morning at 10.30. So until then, have a great week.